Ilwansang and Spring. Several months ago, when I first learned that I would be giving the Dharma talk today, Reverend Wongong proposed the topic Ilwansang and Spring. It combined our temple's plan for an ongoing series of talks about Wan Buddhism with the observance of the spring equinox. Who could have known then what a singular spring this would be? And so, while my talk recognizes the eternal promise of the season, it also makes reference to a reality which is always present, even within the most hopeful of times, but which we usually push away from our thoughts. That reality has now become more present and more insistent. That reality is our mortality. Our mortality. How does this word make you feel? Stressed? Fearful? Angry? Then let's begin with something familiar and reassuring. This circle, the unique symbol of one Buddhism. We call it Ilwansang, the one circle image, and it represents the truth, as well as the perfection of our own nature. We have so many associations with this symbol and with the term itself. Today I'll consider one of these, the idea of cycles, which itself is a word meaning circle. How many examples of cycles can you think of in the next moment? Here's a hint. The title of my talk includes an element of one cycle. Here are some that I came up with. Day and night, the phases of the moon, Newton's law of conservation of matter, the virus life cycle, and of course the seasons. If you are musical, you may be acquainted with the circle or cycle of fifths, by which every key and thus every note in Western music is related to the previous one and the subsequent one by the interval of a fifth, usually demonstrated in circular form, C, G, D, A, E, and so on, until it circles back to C, where it began. There are also what I think of as false cycles, such as the cycles on a washing machine or a dishwasher. Not really cyclical, because they don't end in the state where they began, which is fortunate for us, since we don't want to unload from these machines dishes or clothes which have been resoiled after having been cleaned. There are also cycles within cycles, days within years, seasons within the cycle of life, lives within the cycle of reincarnation. We find two examples of cycles in the Ilwansang vow. First, the formation, duration, decay, and extinction of the universe. And the second, the birth, aging, illness, and death of all things. Have you ever thought of these as cycles when you read or chanted these lines? Did you consider that they imply a cycling back to their first state? In other words, the universe is formed, it exists, it decays and goes extinct, then reforms. We are born, we age, become ill and die, and are reborn. We are comfortable thinking of the cycles of the moon, or the cycle of day and night, or the seasons, 
as endless cycles that return to their beginnings over and over. Indeed, we expect this infinite process to occur. We count on it and are reassured by its inevitability. Aren't you avidly watching the changing of winter to spring right now, noticing every new bud in the garden, the subtle greening of the trees, the increased activity of the birds? Don't you just love spring? Doesn't it carry the promise of rebirth, regeneration, and renewal after the dormancy and deadness of winter? But what about the cycle I just read from the Ilwansang vow, that of birth, aging, illness, death. Do you ever think of death as a time of preparation for new life so that the cycle can begin again? Or do you see it as another of the false cycles I mentioned earlier? I'm quite sure, since we are talking about what is implied by the circle image we see so prominently before us over the altar in our Dharma hall, that Master Sotesan clearly meant this as a true cycle that the seeds, the preconditions of each subsequent stage already exist and are at work in the previous one, and that death is just another point on the circle, which as we remember from studying geometry, has infinite points. A moment ago I said that our feelings about spring imply that it is the time in the cycle of seasons of new beginning, full of promise, hope, and purpose. Many people would say that spring is their favorite season and that they feel most optimistic and energetic at this time of year. Do other circles seem to imply such an optimum time? Think of the, of the cycles you considered at the beginning of this talk. In your mind, are any of them subtly biased toward one particular stage of the cycle? Going back to our cycle in the Ilwansang vow, don't we consider birth to be the beginning of the cycle and the point from which the rest of the cycle will emerge, the stage that we see as the most positive and promise-filled? Everything after that is sometimes considered to be a long downhill slide. After all, we rejoice at the birth of babies, we live with fear of illness, and we cry at funerals. But is this really true? Are spring and birth truly the privileged states within their cycles? What would life be like if the earth were in a continual state of spring, or if we were permanently newborns? First of all, this, condi this condition is not sustainable. Things cannot continue at peak indefinitely, and growth cannot continue unchecked. Take the amaryllis plant. Most of us know those extravagant blooms that erupt from an unpromising-looking brown bulb after we take it from the box that we got at the office Secret Santa gift exchange. How many of you have kept the bulb after it flowered and forced it to flower the next year, and maybe the next? There are several at the temple that have been going for years. I know when I first tried this, I killed the thing with kindness, overwatering and giving it too much light. Someone finally said to me, the amaryllis has to think it's dying. Then it will put out a flower in its last gasp. This is true. Only in the nature of its life cycle does it call up the resources to produce the growth 
that will in turn feed the bulb so that it can survive to cycle on. Cause and effect demonstrated in every biological process and in every scientific principle. The Asian concept of yin and yang explains this underlying truth of cause and effect. Going beyond scientific process to examine the alternating predominance of opposites. This image of yin-yang also reminds us that each state contains an element of the other represented by the small circle of the opposite color within the larger field. The male-yang energy also includes an element of the feminine yin energy and vice versa. Ilwan Sang the one circle image, takes this principle further, representing the state of oneness before all things were created and encompassing all dualities and all complementary forces with perfect impartiality. Within this oneness, the alternation of complementary forces, or yin and yang, creates the myriad things that we recognize as our reality, the physical realm, our world. This alternation is the principle of cause and effect, or karma. These forces are mutually present and interdependent, but rise and cease in alternation. Cause and effect are not separate states. Each cause contains the seed of an effect, and the effect gives rise to a subsequent cause just as the fruit contains the seed and the seed contains the material for the fruit to come. Understanding the principle that every cause has an effect and every effect is already planted in every cause, what makes us hold to our preference for life over decay and death? The answer seems perfectly obvious. Life is the state that we know and death is the greatest unknown that we will ever face, regardless of our beliefs or our faith. Our attachment to the delights of spring and our aversion to the rigors of winter are just a feeble dress rehearsal for the experience of passing from life to death. Can we escape the suffering that the certainty of our mortality brings to our lives? What if we turned our conceptual framework on its ear and considered that birth may be the end, the death, of existence in another plane, and death in this existence may be birth into that other realm. I'll say that again in case you think you might have misheard me. Consider that birth may be the end, the death, of existence in another plane, and death in this existence may be a birth into that other realm. Concepts such as birth and death are constructs of our own making, which enable us to come to terms with the experience of our world. But experience is subjective, and our concepts are too. With concepts comes the ego drive to form judgments and preferences, which serve to cement our notions of who we are as individuals. For example, my name is Lara, I am 70 years old. I am a musician and a teacher. I prefer quiet and reflection to large gatherings. 
The color green is soothing to me. I adore dark chocolate, and on and on. These concepts are in turn only a shorthand for the attachment that my ego ascribes to them. I am 70 years old, and I am attached to my seemingly perfect health. I am a musician and a teacher, and I take some pride in the accomplishments that I have had in those roles. I prefer quiet, and I will go to great lengths to avoid crowds, activity, and noise. The color green soothes me, but the color orange irritates me. I crave dark chocolate, but will pass if offered milk chocolate. These attachments are the means by which our ego hangs on to its notion that we are separate and unique individuals and resists the void beyond and behind this apparent reality. The Buddha had something to say about attachments, didn't he? His great awakening showed him that they are the root of suffering, not only because they produce the never-ending cycle of unfulfilled desire and dissatisfaction, but also because they keep us forever in a state of duality, of separateness from one another and from our world, and from the ultimate truth of existence. Enlightenment is directly seeing the truth of Ilwansang at all times, in all conditions, and realizing that ultimate and conventional reality are the same. Complete, impartial, selfless, non-duality is the true nature of all things, including ourselves. Going back to my concepts of myself, can I see my abundant health as a blessing while it is mine? Remind myself to be compassionate to those who are sick and continue in the same state of gratitude when I myself am ill? In this time of pandemic, can I, as Reverend Wangong reminded us last week, find grace in harm? And ultimately, can I see birth and death as interdependent and interpenetrating like yin and yang, each containing the seed of the other? Can I learn to think of my mortality with at least a measure of serenity and equanimity? Master Chongsan said, there are three steps to resolving the great matter of birth and death. First is to awaken to and realize that realm in which birth and death are originally non-existent and non-dual. Second is to model oneself wholeheartedly on and to preserve that realm in which birth and death are originally non-existent and non-dual. Third is to bestow and actively put into use that realm in which birth and death are originally non-existent and non-dual. One must fully possess true ability in these three steps before one can be said to have fully resolved the great matter of birth and death. Let me put this rather dense language into my own words. First, Awaken to the understanding that birth and death are not separate states, they are one. Then, with that understanding, live in this truth. Do not cling so tightly to the notion of life that you live in fear of death. In this way, you will live and die beyond hope and fear. 
I think that this is what Master Sotesan meant by the words. Once enlightened to the truth of this circle image, we will know that the triple worlds in the ten directions are, are our own property. In other words, if we can find ourselves beyond forms, signs, and symbols, we can move beyond the cycle of suffering to a place where we command both conventional and ultimate reality. In one Buddhist scripture, a passage on the truth of Ilwansang reads, The principle of birth, old age, sickness, and death operates like spring, summer, autumn, and winter. The principle of the recompense and response of cause and effect operates like the alternating predominance of yin and yang. And this is perfect and complete, utterly impartial and selfless. Perfect and complete, utterly impartial and selfless. That sounds like an ideal parent, or perhaps like the idea of God. Julian, or Juliana of Norwich, was an English nun who lived in the late 14th century. She is the author of the earliest surviving book in the English language written by a woman, titled Revelations of Divine Love. She uses Christian terminology, of course. She refers to God and God's love. But if you consider her words as the equivalence of Sotasan's references to the universe and to its perfection, impartiality, and selflessness, this quote provides an alternative yet familiar resonance. She wrote, God loved us before he made us, and his love has never diminished and never shall. And all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is my wish for you as we anticipate another spring full of promise and full of ultimate truth. <laughs>